We'll read the entirety of the first, first chapter. If we turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. As Peter writes uh, this letter, some three decades after Christ had lived and died and Peter had served as an apostle um, alongside the others, and if you remember Peter and who he was, um, I think of Peter as the apostle of identification. You know, not many of us think, you know what, I'm a lot like the apostle Paul. But it's fairly easy for us to identify with someone like Peter, who feels very strong and encouraged in his faith one moment and falls on his face, as it were, the next. So we can identify with Peter. I love the letter of 1 Peter. When you think about Peter's life and you see the roller coaster type faith that he had leading all the way up to the denials at the very end and even after, see, after denying Jesus, after his eyes meeting Jesus as he's hanging there on the cross, after the angels coming or telling the women to go and tell Peter, the risen Christ saying, go and tell Peter. Even after that, John 21 tells us that Peter said, I'm going fishing. That's what Peter was saved from. He was out on the boat when Jesus called him, spent three years with him, denied him right before his death, has seen the risen Christ, and still, still says, I'm going fishing. And Jesus, in his remarkable compassion, goes out to Peter and his friends on the boat. And then we have that, when they catch the fish and come back to the shore, we have that familiar refrain Simon Peter do you love me three times yes you know that I love you then feed my sheep tend my lambs and the book of Acts is chock full of examples of Peter doing that but this letter along with second Peter are also examples of Peter doing that obeying what Christ told him to do on the shore that day feeding his sheep and tending to his lambs even as we read it here now Peter is still accomplishing what Jesus told him to do there as we are benefiting from Peter's apostolic expertise and what he is saying to the church during that day and to us this morning. Let's read 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through a faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, 
so that the proof of your faith, which is more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, Fervently love one another from the heart. For as you have been born again, for you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word of which was preached to you. May God bless his word among us this morning. Peter writes to these residents. He notes where these people are from. They've, they're all gathered elsewhere now, but they came from all these places. Some of these places are mentioned actually in Acts 2 at the day of Pentecost. Peter's writing to some people that were quite likely converted at the day of Pentecost, and now three decades later, he is ministering to them, still shepherding them. What a tender-hearted shepherd we see in Peter. And he writes to them to say, the gospel has rescued you. You've been saved. Revel in this wonderful reality. If you notice, the first 12 verses of this chapter, there's no commands, no expectations it is just glorying in the gospel and the salvation that is ours and the inheritance that's being kept in, God, kept in heaven by God for us and the, the assurance that we're being kept by faith even now so that one day we come into contact and, and we get that inheritance, which is Christ himself. 
We have him now in part by faith, but we will have him fully eventually. Peter notes that this salvation that he's writing about, this gospel, is not some new fad. It's not a new concoction. He actually says, this salvation that I'm talking about, this salvation that you have experienced, we can hear him saying to us this morning, the prophets of old prophesied that this grace would come, and it came in the person of Jesus. They were talking about him, and he came and he saved you. They weren't serving themselves, trying to figure out the way forward. They were serving you and the things that they have written, and it's what, our, what the scriptures are for us today. It's what our Old Testaments are for us. They're pointing us to Christ. He concludes that section saying things into which angels long to look. I think it's one of the most fascinating phrases in all of Scripture. What does Peter mean by that? Things into which angels long to look, but the angels are in heaven. They see it all. But though they have watched from such a glorious place, they've never experienced what Peter's talking about. They've never experienced redemption. They long to see it. They haven't seen it, not in an experiential fashion. The only angels who ever fell, there's no hope of return. But man, vile man, when we fell from grace there in the garden, salvation was offered, it has been provided, and the angels who are worshiping around the throne They know nothing of redemption. They see it happening, but experientially, it is far from them. We have the privilege, we can hear Peter exclaiming, we have the privilege of being redeemed and experiencing the sins being forgiven, having the knowledge of sins forgiving, having a clean conscience before a God who created us. And it's after all of this reveling in the reality of the gospel and glorying in what God has done for us in Christ But then in verse 13, Peter gets to some of the expectations, the now what, the applications of the gospel in our life. Therefore, verse 13, as a result of all that God has done for us, Peter says, prepare your minds, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope, do not be conformed to your former lust, be like the Holy One who called you. Be holy because God is holy. Conduct yourselves in fear. Be reminded constantly that you were not redeemed with perishable things, but you were redeemed with the precious, unblemished, and spotless blood of Jesus Christ. Which brings us then to verses 22 to the end of the chapter, which is where I want us to give our attention this morning. Since you have an obedience to the truth, Peter writes, verse 22. Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. The gospel has rescued you has saved you for the purpose of holiness, saved you from your former ignorance, saved you from the futile way of your forefathers in order that you might be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Be holy 
due to the hope that you have in the Christ who saved you, conduct, conduct your entire lives in reverential fear of him who saved you. And live a life of love one for another. That's what Peter is saying here. God has saved you. And he has saved you to live a life of love. Of directional love. Love one for another. Intentional love. The call to live a holy life includes, and according to Peter here, is evidenced by proper relationships among Christians. More particularly, we can bring it home and say it's proper relationships among church members. In our church's covenant that we agree upon as we become members of the church, this is included, to give ourselves to each other as fellow heirs born from above into the family of God, made alive in Christ, sealed by the Spirit, we agree to meet together faithfully, to stir each other to love Christ, to follow him in careful obedience, to bear one another's burdens, to bring each other to the full measure of the stature of Christ. And Peter is saying here, this call to love one another, this expectation that he has for us to do more than just get along, but to actively love one another is grounded in our conversion to Christ. Look at the way he says it here, the transition from verse 22 to 23. Fervently love one another from the heart, for you have, because you have been born again. Peter says, this is why you've been saved, to express love, real active love, one to another. Peter is writing to a suffering church here. They, they, I mean, you can go back and see they, they are living, they're residing as aliens, scattered, because they're suffering persecution. And he's encouraging them to live a normal or regular Christian life. He's encouraging them to not allow love for one another to be extinguished in the midst of the winds of persecution that they're facing. But we can also hear him emphasizing that we should not let love for one another be extinguished by the gentle breezes of comfort and convenience when things aren't difficult. I mean, we are fickle as sinful humans, and we're prone to let anything stand in the way of doing what God has called us to do. Peter presents earnest love among church members as the hallmark of being converted. Again, look at 22 and 23 together. Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you've been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. Peter commands us to be holy because of what God's done for us. And then he says, your holiness before God is inextricably tied to your love for others. I wonder if that's the way that we think about it. That in order for us to be right with God, we must be properly and actively expressing love towards one another. The argument that Peter's making here, on the one hand, your lives have been set apart by obedience to the truth. Since you have an obedience to the truth, purify your souls for, look, you, you have obeyed the truth for the sake of holiness, for the sake of purifying your souls, for the, the building blocks here it, that Peter is writing, for a sincere love of the brethren. 
an unhypocritical love. You've been born again to an eternal nature whose essence is love. It, it, was, it was the word of God. It's the essence of God himself who is love that has saved you. How could you not then be a conduit of that love and express love one to another? That's the argument that Peter's making. Let's break it down and look at it a little more carefully. First, your lives have been set apart by obedience to the truth. Notice what Peter takes for granted here in verse 22. He's writing to Christians. He's just talked about all that the gospel's done for them and given them a, a pathway to holiness and Christ-likeness. And he assumes, takes for granted, that each of them are being obedient to the truth. What a helpful approach. He just takes for granted that all believers are obeying the truth. And the result is soul purification. It's his assumption. Since you have an obedience, which is, is a great time for us to stop and halt and consider and say, could Peter or anyone say with any measure of integrity to us, since you have an obedience to the truth, purify your soul. Since you are obeying the truth and your soul's being purified by it, then you should love one another. But Peter does that. That's his assumption. And it's helpful for us to see that that is the assumption of all who belong to Jesus. That we are, in obedience to the truth, purifying our souls in order that we might fervently love one another. Obedience to the truth. That is... This concept of obedience that Peter is talking about is that initial obedience of believing the gospel, that, that repenting of your sin and trusting in Christ. When the apostle, writes, the apostle Paul writes to the church at Rome, he talks about this obedience. In chapter 1, verse 5, Through Jesus Christ we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. Or in chapter 15, verse 18, I will not speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, Paul writes, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. Or chapter 16, verse 19, the report of your obedience has reached to all. Or chapter 16, verse 26, according to the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith. What Peter is saying here. In, in the, the long version, since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, what he's saying is, since you're a Christian, because his assumption is that all Christians do this, which is, again, a great question for us. Are we in Christ? Is Christ in us? Are we in obedience, purifying, and loving? The idea of this obedience is a hyper-hearing in the original language. It's, it's not just the auditory aspect of hearing the gospel proclaimed, but it is hearing to the point that the truth sinks down in our souls and produces life-altering change. So it's not just hearing. It's not just reciting. It's not just affirming, but it is obeying the truth. That's the emphasis that Peter's making here. Obedience to the truth is not only intellectual assent to facts about Jesus. 
Knowing facts and believing facts about Jesus is absolutely crucial. But this obedience to truth that Peter is emphasizing here is a transformation of life, especially in the area of how we treat others. Which again is helpful for us to ask the question that Peter is assuming of all Christians. Are you obeying the truth? Have you obeyed the call initially from Jesus to repent and believe the gospel? And are you continuing to obey the commands that he's laid out for us in the scriptures? If you have obeyed, if you are obeying, then Peter writes, since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Again, it's a further something. Peter just assumes that Christians are working towards loving one another. I mean, Notice the awkward redundancy. We just don't talk this way in our, lang- in, in our everyday language. But see what Peter's actually saying. Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Okay? Since your overall goal is to love one another, why don't you love one another? That, that's what Peter's saying. It's nothing more dramatic than that. But when we think about what he's saying, that's dramatic enough. Because we know that it's much easier said than done. And it's worth us asking again, has it been a reality for us that we are giving ourselves to obeying Christ and to fervently loving one another? Not simply an outward pretending of putting up with, not a smiling and faking it when we're here on Sundays. If that's you, you're fooling no one but yourself. One goal of conversion that Peter is making clear here is clearly expressed love for one another. Okay, notice the adjectives, adverb there. Clearly expressed love. This is not saying, well, of course I love everyone. But the expectation is clearly expressed. I mean, Peter notes it here with the word sincere or unhypocritical, unadulterated love, and fervent love. Romans 13, 8, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. I rarely need something to drink when I'm preaching, but when I do, yeah, it's, it's like I can't get it out of my mind, and it just gets worse and worse. So now that I have something here, I'll probably be fine. You know? <laughs> Owe nothing to anyone except love, Paul writes to the church at Rome, or to the church at Galatia, for you are called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. I mean, notice again and again throughout the New Testament this emphasis on loving one another. Ephesians 4, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, showing tolerance for one another in love. 1 John 3, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. If we think Peter's being a little strong in his statement by assuming that all Christians are going to love one another properly, the Apostle John falls into the same trap. 
We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren, he goes on to say. Let us not love with word or tongue, but in deed and truth. Or Romans 12, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Again, John, by this, quoting Jesus, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. So if we think Peter's off his rocker, if we think John's just stretching the truth, we can go all the way back and see that Jesus himself said, all men are going to know that you're my disciples if you have love. This is the way you're going to be defined in society, by the love that you have one for another. I would venture to guess that by and large, the culture in which we live, the culture out there, would not say that the church is known by their love one for another, which is terribly unfortunate. It is an indictment on us as Christians in our day. Peter goes on, since you've been saved to do this, do it. Fervently love one another from the heart. Here's the expectation, constant love from a clean heart with sincerity. So what does that look like? It looks like cordiality towards all. You are going to be closer with some. The, the command here is the expectation is not to be BFFs with everybody. right? You don't have to be the same level of closeness and transparency with everybody, but there has to be an, an expressed cordiality and love towards all Christians. It's going to be closer with some, but there must be an avoidance of none. Peter is not satisfied with tolerating one another. That's not what he's encouraging. He's not suggesting a mere acceptance of one another. He's not proposing a formalized distance from one another. People are easy to love from a distance. But we are all very unlovely up close. Peter says, fervently love one another. What word is there in the ESV or, or any other translation? Fervently love one another from the heart. You have sincerely, earnestly. Yeah. This word in the original only shows up in three places, and one of the other places that it shows up is when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is what Luke says. Being in agony, he was praying very fervently. Okay, So the, the earnestness with which Jesus is praying when his sweat became like drops of blood, that's what Peter is saying. Remember, Peter was there. He fell asleep three times. He remembers that night like no other. That kind of fervent love we ought to be expressing one to another. That's the word that Peter uses here. Fervently love one another with the same kind of fervency and earnestness that Jesus was praying in the garden. It's an earnest striving. It's a stretching of oneself. It's an actual selflessness. Jesus' whole life was marked by selflessness, but in no place like in the garden and on the cross. And that's our calling. That's our expectation, to love one another in that way. Listen to what the apostle writes to the church at Thessalonica. As to the love of the brethren, 
You have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Here's Paul writing to the church at Thessalonica saying, I don't even have to write this. It's like God has already taught this to you. You know. He goes on to say, For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia, but we urge you, brethren, to excel still more in your love for one another. So there's never any contentment with this. It should be always striving for more. There's always more room for us to die to self and exalt others. There's always room for us to die to self and love others better and more fervently. It probably goes without saying, but it's definitely worth mentioning. This love is not warm, fuzzy feelings or just folks getting together and having fun. This love that is expected from Peter, from John, from Paul, from God, in Christ, righteous relationships based on God's character. That's the definition of love that's expected. That we would have righteous relationships that are based on the character of God. Your relationship with God is not only an individual matter. I've been talking to people before in evangelistic opportunities or trying to encourage folks and I've heard things like, me and God got our own thing going. You may have your own thing going, but it's not with God. Because your relationship with God, you are saved as an individual. You become a son or daughter. That's true. He becomes your father. Christ is your elder brother. But the Christian life cannot authentically be lived in isolation. The New Testament knows nothing of isolationist Christianity. The Christian life is not you and yours with a little bit of Jesus on the side or on top. The Christian life is sincere, fervent, unadulterated, pure love from the heart for one another. It's as if Peter is giving us a really helpful plumb line or measuring stick for our holiness. And I think it's helpful to see what he doesn't give us as a plumb line or measuring stick for our holiness. It's not biblical knowledge. It's not theological precision. It's not doctrinal accuracy. Those things are good and necessary in their own right. But that's not the plumb line for our holiness that we find in the scriptures. It's not even church attendance or our public profession of faith. All these things are expected, but that's not the plumb line or measuring stick for our holiness. What Peter says, it's how we treat others. It's how we love others. With our words to their face and with our words behind their back. With our thoughts and our deeds. When we're with them and when we're away from them. When we're around others who may assume that that would be on the same page as us, and when we're around others who may think differently than us. All of these scenarios are included in Peter's very clear admonition, since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart, from the innermost being. In a similar way, Jesus is teaching about the great, he's asked about the great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And you remember that when Jesus makes this statement, 
with regard to what should be done to inherit eternal life, the lawyer, which even in Jesus' day made fools of themselves, and they still do in our day, but he stood in an attempt to justify himself and said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? No, it's not an honest question. But the expectation that Jesus says is love God who is lovely and love others who are not so lovely. That's the greatest commandment summarized by Jesus. But this lawyer had a head full of accurate and wonderful knowledge and a heart full of wickedness that is exposed in his ridiculous question. Who is my neighbor? Who exactly, this is what he's asking, who exactly do I have to love? Or more precisely, his question was, who do I not have to love? What are the exceptions? Surely there are some exceptions to this law, this rule, this expectation. His response should not have been, who is my neighbor? His response should have been, Lord, help me love my neighbors. God, help me. But rather than admitting anything lacking in himself, he sought to justify himself by getting Jesus to clarify exactly who was not his neighbor. So in Jewish tradition, as you may know, the neighbor of the Jew is the Jew only. To a Jew, the non-Jew is a non-neighbor. How convenient. But we are so prone to defining neighbor like the Jews of old. Are your neighbors people that are like you, that think like you, talk like you? Jesus, in essence, says to this expert in Jewish culture and law, I don't really care about your tradition. The law of God trumps it. And you are required to love God and to love your neighbor. And Jesus proceeds to use a parable to explain exactly what he means, the parable has come to be known as the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus replied to this man, asking the question, who is my neighbor, and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put on his own beast and put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave him to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. And then Jesus asked the question, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy to him. And Jesus said to him, go and do the same. So Jesus tells the story here. The man fell upon hard times. The priest comes by. His immediate thought, if he's dead and I touch him, I'm unclean. The Levite comes by. Well, what if he's just baiting me and going to take advantage of me? The Samaritan comes by and shows compassion and caring. The expectation for us to love one another, to love our neighbors, is not to have passive impressions or to 
feel, to be emotionally moved with regard to a situation, but active obedience is what God's calling for. Christian kindness, costly sacrifices of time and or resources. Jesus asked the question, making his point very clear, which of the three proved to be a neighbor? So the question for us is not, who is your neighbor? The question is, will you be a neighbor? Now, there are all kinds of opportunities for us to do this in our world, not just within the context of a local church, but at our places of employment and in the community or where we are, there are abortion clinics fairly close within a half hour or so, and the most vulnerable neighbors among us are the pre-born neighbors. And we have an opportunity to be a good neighbor and love them by being a voice for those who do not have a voice. In Galatians 6.10, Paul writes, let us do good to all people. There's cordiality among all living amicably with everyone in the world, and especially, he writes, to those who are of the household of faith. A lack of mutual love among the church results from lack of obedience to the truth, which flows from love. Again, we see that spelled out in Peter's argument here. Genuine faith in Christ brings about genuine love for the church. Genuine faith in Jesus brings about genuine love for Jesus' people. But Peter's argument continued. It would be sufficient. Verse 22 could stand completely on its own without what had been said previously and without what follows. But considering what is said previously, which we've looked at briefly already, and considering verse 23 and following, it is difficult for us to shake this responsibility that Peter is laying on us here. Look at what he says, for you have been because or since you've been born again, because of what God has done in you through the gospel, because of the seed that's been implanted in you, which is living and enduring, it's the seed that brought about life, you have an expectation. The one who has saved you, his very essence is love. How could you not be loving? You've been born again. What are the expected results of regeneration? The expectations are great. The expectations are radical. There are radical results expected expected and anticipated as a result of being born from above, being born of God. Being born again does not produce the potential for change. Let me say it again. Being born again does not produce the potential for change. Being born again creates actual change. One area of actual change is that God is now your father. And if he is your father, then fellow Christians are your brothers and your sisters. The instrument of this change, Peter notes, is the living and enduring Word of God. Oh, dry bones, Ezekiel said, hear the word of the Lord. And they came to life. Those of us who are in Christ, that's what brought us to life, was the word of the Lord. And it's that word of the Lord that continues to work in us and through us, accomplishing God's good pleasure among us. The foundational reason of motivation to love is the gospel. 
is your redemption, the love of God that has been shed abroad in your hearts. It's as if God has not just filled us up with his love, but he has filled us up to the point of overflowing, making us conduits of his love. We are born again with imperishable seed, Peter says. Seed that is enduring, that lives. So it's, it's the gospel that not only brings new life, but it abides in us. It maintains life. It sustains us. It continues to change us through our obedience to the truth. We're continually, continually being sanctified and maturing into the image of Jesus Christ. And that happens through the word of God, by the spirit of God. When his word goes forth in a setting like this, or when his word comes forth when we read it, and is joined with the spirit inside of us, it accomplishes the purpose of God in us as individuals and among us as God's people. The fact that this gospel is living and enduring is of utmost benefit to us. I mean, think about it. What if we were just birthed and abandoned? Spiritually speaking. Physically speaking, we know how detrimental it would be. Spiritually speaking, it would be just as detrimental. We're not birthed and abandoned. We're birthed and we're babied and we're nurtured and we're carried and we're taught all the way to the end till we see him and become like him because we see him as he is and are made like him. Peter says, because you are Christians, you are obeying God and your soul's being purified in order to love one another. So do that. Love one another. And here's why. Here's extra motivation. Because you've been born again of imperishable seed, of living seed, of enduring seed. Seed that once it is put in you, once it's activated by the Spirit of God, it will never cease. God is eternal, and everything he does is eternal. He's changeless. And so he accomplishes salvation in us, and we are changed forever. So contrary to us. And that's the, that's the contrast that Peter brings about by quoting from Isaiah here in verses 24 and 25. All flesh is like grass and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. We are finite. Our life is so brief. Psalm 39, 4, let me know how transient I am, the psalmist writes. Or James 4, 14, you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Or Job 14, man who is born of a woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Like a flower, he comes forth and withers. He also flees like a shadow and does not remain. But notice in these comparisons that Peter is making here, quoting from Isaiah, there's plenty to compare to us. Grass, flowers, but there's no comparison for the word. Verse 25, it simply stands and endures forever. There's no comparison. We are finite. Brevity defines us. But the word of the Lord that has saved us, it endures forever. 
Peter simply explains and restates this us being perishable and the word being imperishable by using the quote from Isaiah. The work of the word of God in our lives is permanent. And the way that he has determined the word to work in us, one of the primary ways, primary means of grace is stated in the second half of verse 25. And this is the word which was preached to you. Or literally proclaimed as good news. This is the word that has been heralded to you. Which ought to be an encouragement for us. Because we want to reach the lost. We want to see, we want to love our neighbors so well that they too come to the knowledge of sins forgiven. That they can have a clean conscience. That they can live for his glory. How will we reach them? By proclaiming this truth. By loving them enough to tell them the truth. Now, we live in a world where there are lots of methods and gimmicks and strategies. But there's only one method that will accomplish the goal of bringing souls to Christ. And it's the proclamation of the truth. It's sharing the truth of the word of God. That we were born sinners and Christ came to save sinners. And by his life and death and resurrection, through faith in him and repentance from our sins, we can become children of God. Romans 10, 13, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? The word of God is the only means God uses to awaken new life in an unbeliever. The truth of the gospel is the only hope for lost mankind. God's eternal word creates eternal life. This, this has remarkable implications and encouraging implications in our evangelism. It's never our arguments that win someone to Christ. It's not even, at the end of the day, our life example that's going to win someone to Christ. But it is the power of God himself by means of his word. Now, it is important for us to know the truth and, and to have a level-headed conversation with those who may disagree. It's important for our life to match the profession that we've made. But the gospel is the power of God. And God alone saves using the proclaimed gospel. So, in conclusion... Since you have, in obedience to, truth, to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. One of the first marks, one of the hallmarks of a Christian is love for other believers. May God help us to be marked by this. That we would be a people that express love for other believers and for other people remembering that it is a clear measurement of our sanctification and holiness. Our love for others, not how much we love them in our hearts, but how much we love them by the way that we talk about them and to them and by the way that we express our love for them is a measuring stick for our sanctification and our maturation in Christlikeness. Personality and preference are irrelevant to this expectation that Peter is laying out for us. Regeneration is the power of God to change our pitiful preferences. 
I have preferences with regard to people that I enjoy being around. I'm by nature an introvert, which means I enjoy being around no one. <laughs> At the same time, I do enjoy real fellowship. You know, it, it's a dynamic. God has had to work and hopefully is continuing to work, and love demands. Um, Obviously, uh, with regard to my calling, love demands that you spend time with people, more, sometimes more time than would be preferred. But we have to believe that regeneration is the power of God to change our pitiful preferences. Who cares if I don't want to be around people? That's the argument I have to make with myself. Who cares? What does Christ expect? What has he called you to do? Christian growth cannot be self-centered. We will not grow if we're focusing on ourselves. It cannot be individualistic. Real maturation will only occur in the context of Christian fellowship. God has given us the local church for that, to stir one another on, to provoke one another to love and good deeds. It is, at the end of the day, it is the reality of God's love for us that kindles our love for one another. So, in our attempt to love one another, it doesn't work for us to try to figure out how to love people better or to sit back and look at them closer in order to figure out how to love them better. Actually, the closer you get to someone, as I mentioned before, the more difficult they are to love. But what will stir our hearts to love one another more is looking at the way that God loves us. Our hearts are warmed and encouraged by the reality of the gospel, by the truth of the cross, that Christ, when we were still sinners, when we were at enmity with him, he came and he lived and he died in order that we might be saved. And that should stir us up to love, not just inwardly, but to express constant, clean love, unadulterated, pure love, one for another, initially and foremost within the local church and then extending out, branching into the community and throughout the world. Even the mission endeavors that, that we're a part of, it's because of love. It's because we, because we love those who have the image of God stamped on them. So we work to get the gospel into those places so that they too might be saved and they might come under the same conviction and realize, oh, God has loved me and love others as a result. May God help us, each of us and all of us, to continue obeying the truth of God's word, purifying our souls for a sincere love of one another so that we might fervently, with the same kind of earnest fervency that Jesus is praying in the garden on the night before his crucifixion that we might love one another in that kind of selfless sacrificial way realizing that he has saved us from ourself he has saved us from our sin and he's done so through the living and enduring word of God saved with the precious blood of a lamb unblemished and spotless the blood of Christ that is of eternal value. How could we not love him and love one another when we consider what he's done for us? Let's close in prayer.